Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. As government officials and business leaders look to reopen the country now, one of the safety measures frequently touted is temperature screening to track fevers, a common symptom of coronavirus infections. FEMA has just placed an order for 14,000 thermometers for New York City. At the White House, members of the press must have their temperature taken before they're in close proximity to the president or vice president. And at the General Motors plant in Kokomo, Indiana, where the assembly line is now making ventilators instead of auto parts, employees are required to undergo a temperature check as soon as they arrive at work. The problem is checking for fevers is unreliable and maybe even deceiving. Dr. Fred Jacobs, a pulmonologist and former commissioner of the New Jersey Health Department, is with us. Temperature checks seem like they're going to be ubiquitous in the very near future. Are they necessary? Well, I don't think temperature checks, uh, you know, really tell you what you want to know. That's the problem. If you have a temperature elevation, you know, it could be from any number of things, but assuming that in a pandemic year, one of the things it could be is from infection with this coronavirus. The trouble is most of the trans, much of the transmission occurs before there are any symptoms or signs of infection. So if you're shedding virus for two or three days before you have any symptoms or signs and no temperature elevation, then checking for uh, uh, you know, temperature elevation as a screening tool misses all of that. And those are the people who feel okay. They feel well. They're walking around. And if you want to prevent them from coming into your store or their place of employment or a hospital or wherever, and you're screening for temperature alone, you're going to miss all of it. And and then, of course, there are people who are infected who don't have a temperature elevation. Why are all these businesses as part of their reopening protocols, including temperature checks? Well, I think it's it's what they can do. You know, in the absence of testing, see, these are all substitutes for what needs to be done. What needs to be done is to have a rapid accurate kind of test that you could do multiple times on individuals. I was talking to the task force last night in New Jersey about if you want to screen people going into the hospital, I mean, not just visitors, but staff, nurses, doctors, everybody, you ought to have somebody at the front door who can do a test that's read in five minutes. You have people in a holding area. When the test is negative, they go into the hospital. If it's not, they don't. And you could do that anywhere. But you need a test that's rapidly available, very accurate, and uh, easily administered. So, well, in the absence of that, you're doing all these second best uh, things like temperature checks, which is, I think, uh, a very second best way of doing it. But it's it's a substitute for what needs to be done. Is there any harm in taking everyone's temperature? Well, the harm is that if they don't have a temperature, you think they're okay. You're missing all the people who are contagious, who are shedding virus, whose temperature is normal, and you're letting them circulate, they feel reassured. The people they're they're, mixing with feel reassured, and it's a false assurance. There's really no substitute for testing. I don't think so. 
uh, this, the substitute for testing is a universally available, uh, you know, highly potent uh, vaccine. Dr. Fred Jacobs, a pulmonologist, the former commissioner of the New Jersey Health Department, our thanks to you. As this pandemic goes on, doctors are learning a lot more about the virus itself. It does discriminate on the basis of sex. Dr. Della Tagapur of Johns Hopkins and the ABC News Medical Unit is with us now. So there's a gender gap here, Doc. Coronavirus does not impact us all the same. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. The Data is showing that more and more we're seeing a disparity. Now, sometimes that disparity has been with race. And in this case of this story, the disparity is between men and women. And what differences are you noticing? Well, a lot of them, actually. So statistics out of the United States, for example, are saying that even though women are being tested more often, men are positive more often. Then we have studies coming out of the UK saying that men are twice as likely uh, to actually die from this coronavirus. A large study out of China is saying that men are accounting for about 75% of the deaths. And then a study out of Italy uh, that still has the highest rate of death is saying that the ratio between men and women is 80% to 20. Is there any known reason why the virus seems to be impacting men in greater numbers than women? A lot of it's speculative. So we have a lot of theories. Some of them are lifestyle factors, some are part of our nature, and some are cultural. So lifestyle factors include things like smoking, alcohol, rates of diabetes, and what kind of professions people have. Smoking, we know men are far more likely to smoke than women, and maybe it's perhaps due to decades of masculination of smoking, uh, you know, being associated with wealth, power, and sexual success. And in countries like China, half of men are are smokers. Uh, Smoking has a clear relationship with lung damage, making smokers more vulnerable to severe cases of COVID-19. And occupation-wise, a lot of men, especially in other countries, have more exposures to environmental toxins, uh, a lot of other stressors that might make them more exposed than women are. What about our immune systems? Do the immune systems of men and women behave differently? They actually do. So scientists and researchers who have studied the immune system for other illnesses have already found profound differences between how the immune system works between men and women. Women have a couple of things going for them. One of them is that we have two X chromosomes and men have one. They have an XY. The X chromosome is involved in the immune system response, and having two copies of that might be protective. Also, the sex hormones, uh, such as androgen, which is for men, suppress the immune system, whereas estrogen, the female sex hormone, generates higher immune responses and can impact the good gut bacteria. We also, there have been reports that women who have recovered from COVID-19, more severe cases, have actually built up more antibodies. And antibodies might indicate an ability to form immunity. There's also the evolution stance. Women of childbearing age are better at fighting infections, even though their actual systems, while they're pregnant, might make them a little bit more at risk. In general, during that age group, they're better at fighting off infections so they can preserve mankind. I was also struck by something that I heard at one of the White House coronavirus task force briefings, the male inclination to just tough it out. Does that play any role here? 
Yeah, it might. Like I said, in the U.S., we're actually seeing that men are coming a little bit later and less often than women are, yet their numbers are higher than women's as far as infections, as far as hospitalizations, and as far as deaths. So maybe culturally, the whole notion of toughing it out is making people present a little bit later than they should. Dr. Della Tagapur of Johns Hopkins at our medical unit here at ABC News. As of now, there is a new order in the epicenter of the nation's outbreak. Whenever outside and unable to be six feet from others, New Yorkers must wear a face covering. It doesn't have to be a mask, a bandana or scarf will do, but masks have certainly become part of the coronavirus wardrobe. And a designer and manufacturer of copper-infused masks just donated thousands of them to several health systems in New York and New Jersey. Joey Braha of Copper Compression is with us. What's a copper ion-infused face mask? Our company was preparing to launch uh, a hygienic travel line for those uh, germaphobes concerned about uh, traveling, and we had a vision to be the f- the first to introduce an antibacterial consumer mask that was reusable and reliable. Once we received and completed our mask, we had a shipment coming in as the pandemic rose to to height, and we were available to to donate our entire shipment of eighteen thousand antibacterial, washable, and reusable face masks to some of the major health system in the New York and New Jersey area that needed it for their frontline workers. What is it about copper in a mask that makes this unique? Copper itself has scientifically been proven for its hygienic benefits, which stop and kill up to 99% of bacteria and fungi. If people wanted them on a large-scale basis as the demand for masks and the requirements for face coverings grows around the country, how many of these can you make? Uh, Currently, our production is at about 50,000 per month. Again, it's a novelty item. Uh, We haven't really looked into increasing these masks that we're talking about. Our copper ion infused face masks are actually going to be for sale. So in the next day or so, these are going to be available to the public for sale. What do they run? Uh, Right now, we have a two-pack available for $20 online. Joey Braha at Copper Compression. And coming up, our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, with more about what we're learning of coronavirus. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With me here, as always, is ABC chief medical correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we're hearing about the need to do contact tracing as many people are now examining reopening some parts of the country. What do we know about the process of contact tracing? Well, Amy, it's critical in any type of outbreak or infection control. So let's do a deep dive. We know that contact tracing is an essential part of infection control in that it helps to interrupt transmission of the virus. So you're going to be hearing trace and test, test and trace. All right. And so if a person is identified as a contact of someone who's been confirmed with COVID-19, how long should that person then self-quarantine? 
Well, here's what we think we know at this time. We think that that period of time, that incubation period, is two weeks. And during that time, it's critically important that that person act as if she or he is infected. That is really important. Then we think that after 14 days, it's safe for that person to then resume their normal activities. All right, that's what we think we know. What we don't know is how this will all be handled, correct? Exactly. And the logistics are that's that's really the million dollar question here, Amy, because we don't know whether this contact tracing will be done by people in the field of public health, volunteers, paid employees. We don't know if it will be using technology or an app that all of that needs to be worked out and it needs to be worked out quickly. We also don't know if people will actually comply with this. So Mm -hmm. if I contact you and say you've been in touch with someone who just tested positive, you need to self-quarantine for two weeks. Will people do that? And lastly, we don't know if 14 days is really enough time. So there's still a lot to learn. All right, Dr. Jan Ashton, you will be back in just a bit. While much of Congress has been on recess, a freshman representative from New York deployed with the National Guard to assist in COVID-19 relief. Congressman Max Rose just wrapped up that active duty, and he joins us now from his home in Staten Island. Congressman, thanks so much for being here. And you said you wanted to deploy because you wanted a more hands-on role during these times. What did you find? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you and your family staying safe and strong. What I found just in these two weeks that I served on the ground is that my service pales in comparison, pales um, in comparison to the healthcare professionals and the soldiers from the National Guard who have been deployed um, to these sites and don't know necessarily how long they're going to be there. Doctors who their own family members have passed away within the last week, their own family members in the hospital right now and they still serve. Nurses who haven't seen their, been able to hug their children because they're self-quarantining and they're still going to work every day knowing that they have a real purpose. It's truly, truly awe-inspiring. You know, the unit that I was able to serve alongside is the same unit, the Fighting 69th Infantry Regiment, that I was a company commander in before I uh, became a member of Congress. This was the the unit that's the longest-serving unit in the United States right now. They were the first unit at Ground Zero. They marched down from their armory on 26th Street. Over and over and over again, this National Guard unit has risen to the challenge when New York City and the country needs it most. This was such a privilege to be there on the ground to stand up the first state-run COVID-only hospital facility in the country, a much-needed facility, as we not only prepare to tackle this surge of patients, but build out an infrastructure to take on the next surge to make sure that we are not caught flat-footed going forward. How are you taking what you've learned in these past few weeks to your day job as a freshman congressman to help out in this crisis? Absolutely. So first and foremost, it begins with hospitals being emphasized. If we want to have an infrastructure to tackle this going forward, we have to build out our hospitals and their ancillary facilities capacity to take on a future surge. That is so critical, not only from a healthcare perspective, but also from the perspective of opening the economy back up. I also must tell you that I have uh, a limited Uh, patience for Mm -hmm. anyone who's playing politics right now, be they Democrat or Republican, after seeing on the ground the incredible sacrifices that our healthcare professionals are making, our soldiers are making as they take on this invisible Mm -hmm. virus enemy. 
we cannot stall any effort to use the full apparatus of the state and of society to take this fight on. And then lastly, testing, testing, testing. We have to dramatically expand the capacity to test millions of people every day, antibodies and the virus, contact trace, they're going forward, as well as distribute PPE. No nurse, no bus driver, no person working at a supermarket, no frontline first responders should ever have to go with the PPE that they need to protect themselves, their family, because they are the ones that are keeping this city and this state running, and we are relying on them. We should support them as such. That is so true. And I, I want to give you some credit because you deserve a lot. You are a decorated combat veteran with a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star. You served time in Afghanistan. So what advice do you give to those first responders who are out there battling in these incredibly stressful situations while they're going up against this virus right now? Look, I, I say this with full humi- humility that folks are out there sacrificing in ways that even myself downrange in Afghanistan, you know, they decide that they're, good, they're, they're going home afraid that they're sick, afraid that they could potentially make their own family members sick. I would say, first of all, be compassionate to yourself. You people are making the largest sacrifices one could ever ask of any human being. And show, show compassion because... No human being is perfect. No human being could withstand these stresses. That, I think, is absolutely, absolutely essential. The second thing is just that you're not alone. You're not alone. We have got to be there behind you, not just with the PPE, but know that we are never going to forget the sacrifices you're making today. When it comes time that you, you deserve to be supported years from now, Years from now, knowing that you stood up and you did your job in the toughest of circumstances, just as you always have. And we as a city, we as a state, we as a country are never going to forget that. Your sacrifices are not going unnoticed and we are behind you. Congressman, thank you for your service and all that you have sacrificed. We certainly appreciate your incredible, powerful words today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Stimulus checks have started to appear in bank accounts all over the country, and more are scheduled to arrive in mailboxes in the weeks to come. So how should you spend that money? Here to give us some great tips is the CEO and founder of Clever Girl Finance, Bola Shokumbi. And Bola, thanks for being with us today. And before we spend anything, tell us what everyone who is receiving stimulus payments, what should they do first? Yeah, so the first thing you want to do is create a plan to stretch your dollars. And you can start by assessing what essentials you need and also what core bills you need to pay to get by this month. And if you're finding that that money is not quite enough to cover all your bills, then you definitely want to reach out to your creditors, your service providers, and let them know that you need some assistance. All right. What are your top priorities for where this money should go? So your top priorities are your core essentials. That's your food, your housing, your core utilities like water and electricity, and also any medicines that you need. And you want to keep in mind that your goal is to stretch your dollars as far as possible. So can you meal plan? Can you switch from brand name to generic? And what are certain things that you can do without to stretch that check as far as possible? Yeah, you have to start asking yourself some questions that maybe you hadn't had to in the past. Uh, Another question people have, should the stimulus payment be used to pay off any of your debt? 
Well, that's a great question. So if you don't already have a funded emergency savings in place, which is basically three to six months or more of your basic living essentials, so food, housing, core utilities, medicine, then you want to focus on getting that funded and you can use that stimulus check to support that. However, if you're in a good place with your emergency savings, then it is a good idea to use that stimulus check to pay down your debt, starting with your highest interest debt. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good information for all of us out there. Bola Shakanbi, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. Thank you. Coming up next right here, Dr. Jen Ashton with your medical Q&A, plus spiritual suggestions from teacher and author Michael Beckwith. And those funny, funny tweets we are all sharing. Well, Rex Chapman is here with that. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. We turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for your growing list of coronavirus questions. We're always in full supply of those, Dr. Jen. So many questions, so we'll start with the first one. If I had COVID-19 and I have been symptom-free for 21 days, do I need to wear a mask in public? No one really knows. Now, remember that the... the CDC guidelines that are encouraging all Americans in the in the lay public to cover their nose and mouth, that is for the protection of others. So if you've been diagnosed with COVID-19, we think that by then you should be free of symptoms and obviously not contagious, but we don't know for sure. So there should be no reason why someone who's been actually diagnosed should do less than the average uh, public or population. Okay, our next question. If, ha- if I had COVID-19, what can I do to decontaminate things like my couch, bed, chairs? It's such a hard question because we just have such limited data on how long this virus can survive on inanimate objects. Um, We know that it's anywhere from hours to days on hard surfaces, but we don't know about fabrics. We don't know about clothing. We don't know about money. So I think you want to basically clean and disinfect whatever you can. Um, But remember, you've already had it and we should be social distancing for a while anyway. So you don't need to completely sterilize your environment. Yeah, I I have the when in doubt disinfect uh, way of thinking about pretty much everything these days. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah. A lot of people haven't been tested. I mean, very few people actually have been tested. So this next question is interesting. If I was presumptive positive but not tested, how will I be able to prove that I had COVID-19, especially since antibody tests aren't available widely yet? Well, that is a key question. And it's not just that antibody tests are not available widely. It's that we don't know the accuracy or utility of those test results yet. So we don't know, let's say this person gets their antibodies tested and it shows they've been exposed, we think, to this coronavirus. But remember, it's possible that that test could pick up other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. And we don't know how long those antibody levels or that immunity last. So there is still a lot that we have to learn about this antibody testing and how it will work. All right. What advice do you have for people who have pre-existing mental health issues and also live with a healthcare worker? Extraordinarily stressful situation. So you have to know yourself. Talk 
communicate, ask open-ended questions if you're living with a person with a history of psychological, emotional, or mental health issues. And again, keep that those channels of conversation open because this is a stressful time for everyone. That just piles more additional stress and anxiety on there. So reach out for help if it's possible, even with these great health and wellness apps um, that are including now mental health professionals. So that's that should be um, a valuable resource if it can be widespread. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, we always appreciate your very important advice to all of us. Thank you so much for answering those questions. With this worldwide pause on ordinary daily life events, some parents are definitely finding it hard to keep children on track with their milestones. So here to talk us through how parents can prevent their kids from falling behind is renowned pediatrician and author of The Happiest Toddler on the Block, Dr. Harvey Karp. Dr. Karp, thank you so much for being here. And there has been a lot of information out there on homeschooling older children, but there's not been a lot out there for parents of toddlers and preschoolers, so should parents be concerned their children will fall behind since they aren't in daycare or preschool yet? Well, first, I think parents have to pat themselves on the back because they're doing something amazing. In history, in the entire history of humanity, you've never had parents locked into an apartment for weeks on end without the help of friends and family coming over and other kids. So number one, parents should really (laughs) kind of be appreciative of everything they're doing. It's not easy with little kids. Number two, it's kind of like summer vacation right now in a certain sense. Do not stress out about your kids advancing academically. You know, they're going to forget some of the things from school, but that's not the important thing. The important opportunity here is to have family time to get closer together, to learn about each other. And yeah, if they forget some of their ABCs or some of their lessons, they're going to make that up when when everything gets back to normal. Yeah, I I think that's some really good perspective there. So give us uh, some things that parents can be focusing on teaching or doing with toddlers at home right now. You know, the most important thing for learning is to be having fun and Mm. participating together. So it might be cooking. You know, let's measure, let's measure the flour and we're going to make cookies today. Or it could be going outside and picking weeds or digging a hole in the garden and learning about measuring mud and making mud pies. Or it could be planting seeds and watching them grow and seeing that day by day. It's really the, the excitement for the toddler is to have time with their parents. I know that's really hard for parents and you have to take turns because no one can be with a three-year-old all day long. It's too hard. But... You know, you're the superstar in your toddler's life. And so they love having that time together. There are a whole bunch of other things to do as well. One of the things I like to teach parents is something called magic breathing, which is a way of children just sitting there and taking a deep breath in and a slow breath out. And you can literally conduct it like you would an orchestra. Breathe in, slow, breathe out. And you do just one or two of those, but several times a day. That helps a child learn how to turn on and turn off their activity so that they can learn to have better balance. I like that. And, you know, you mentioned it's not easy having toddlers in the house. So for parents who may be struggling to reinforce good behavior at home, you say a big tip is to gossip about it. Tell us what that means. I know it's a kind of a silly sounding word, but listen, if someone says to you, hey, you look great today, you know, you feel like they're just being polite. But if you overhear them whispering in the hallway, then you, ha- you believe it because there's no ulterior motive. And so when you praise a child, say it directly, hey, good job, you picked up all your toys so fast, give me five, man. 
But then five, 10 minutes later, whisper to the birdie outside or pretend like you're talking to grandma and say, hey, grandma, Bobby did such, he picked, he, he picked up all his toys really fast. When they overhear the praise, it's like you're tripling the effect of the praise. Same thing for criticism, if, you, if they're doing something you don't like. And that helps to guide them in terms of the behavior you want to see. All of these techniques are from a book called Happiest Toddler on the Block, which has a lot more ways of how you help a child who is between eight months and five or six or seven years old, how to have better emotional balance and um, how to encourage them in good behavior. I love this, Dr. Harvey Carpin, also as a mom of teenagers now. I remember when I used to be the rock star and they wanted to spend time with me. Just remember they grew up and then they don't want to spend time with you. So enjoy it now, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Be safe, everybody. Thank you. And coming up next right here as we continue, Keeping the Faith on this Friday with spiritual teacher and author Michael Beckwith. We'll be right back. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. During this time, a lot of people are turning to their faith for answers and words of encouragement. So joining us now is spiritual leader Michael Beckwith. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. And as a spiritual leader, explain to us what you bring to your practice and your community. Well, in our community, we have um, obviously we're live streaming our services. Last Sunday, we had over 100,000 people viewing we have a, a noon meditation that we offer. We have a morning prayer session that we offer at 8 a.m. Our youth ministries and our young children's ministries are online as well. We have a Friday night gathering where people uh, tune in all over the world to have conversation and dialogue and prayer, basically to keep them out of fear. We have discovered that the greatest virus is the virus of the mind, which is fear, which impugns the immune system so individuals are more susceptible to disease. So once an individual uh, comes more into their faith, their hope, their sense of maybe being at home but not alone, then uh, they become more available to discernment, more available to being of service, more available to compassion. Something that I've taught over the years is that spiritual community grants you immunity from the lower frequencies of life. And we've discovered uh, so much good uh, people are becoming involved with when they practice their faith. There are some helpful tools, though, that I know you suggest for people they can use if they're feeling anxious right now, they're feeling that fear. What can they do? What tools can they use? Well, if they're feeling anxious right now, that means they have a fear of the future. What you need to do right now is to stop and come into a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving for anything at all. And think about your loved ones and how much you love them. Now, when you come into that gratitude love factor, your body begins to produce oxytocin. Oxytocin takes you out of the fight and flight reaction and moves you into a higher state of awareness where you're more susceptible to wisdom and guidance and making right choices in the moment. Anxiety and anxiousness depletes you, whereas gratitude and love, it completes you at a whole nother level. I teach people that since you have to wash your hands on a regular basis, as you're washing your hands, begin to say something to yourself like, I am protected and maintained and sustained by the presence that's never an absence. The presence of God, the presence of love, the presence of peace that's never an absence. So when you complete washing your hands, 
you have not allowed your mind to be hijacked mm. by fear or worst case scenarios. Your mind has now become an avenue of great possibility and great opportunity. What message do you have of optimism leading into this weekend for people right now? Well, I want people to begin to ask the question, you know, who do I want to be as the nation, as the world is going through this particular crisis? And when you begin to ask who you want to be, you remember that there's something within you that's actually greater than what's happening in the world. And you'll begin to grow into the person you want to be. We've discovered that as people have begun to ask this question, good deeds are springing up all over the place. People are putting notes on people's doors. I'm going to the grocery store. Can I shop for you? Mm. People are cooking for each other because they're now operating from a higher state of awareness rather than a debilitating fear, doubt, and worry awareness. I want people to know that we're going to get through this, that our immune systems are becoming stronger by what we're doing, particularly in the faith community, and, and that not to create worst-case scenarios. Mm. Create scenarios in your mind where there are opportunities, great possibilities, and each of us growing to become better individuals. I love that. Michael Beckwith, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate that guidance you've given us. We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts on this Friday. Jen? Well, Amy, uh, you've known me for a long time. You know that I'm a very touchy-feely type of person. I'm also a touchy-feely kind of doctor because the power of physical touch is so important. It's really the essence of our human-to-human communication. Um, And it's been shown in scientific studies to be really important in bonding. It releases those feel-good hormones like oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin. And it's not just important for newborn babies, but also older people and also romantic partners. So now in the setting of the pandemic, we have a separation of that and in many cases a complete absence of that. So in reading a lot about this, how can we bring physical touch safely back into our world? Um, I read a DIY article that talked about at night simply holding our own hands together, Mm -hmm. closing our eyes and imagining physical contact, holding our face in our own hands to imagine almost a romantic contact and even hugging ourselves. And then there are things like dancing and singing, whether you do it individually or online as part of a community, can help boost those same hormones. So we have to always connect the mind, body, behavior, and spirit as we struggle through this or any other health crisis. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton. And coming up next right here as we continue, the ex-NBA star spreading a little Twitter joy and raising some much-needed funds, all for a good cause. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And welcome back. Our next guest is a former NBA player who fell on hard times after becoming addicted to painkillers. Rex Chapman would later build an impressive following on Twitter by sharing funny videos. And now he is helping or hoping those followers will help him help those affected by this pandemic. And he joins us now. So, Rex, you've started a coronavirus relief fund. You made the announcement on Twitter. So tell us all about it. Yeah, you know, I have this silly Twitter following now, and um, a buddy of mine who I do a a blocker charge TV show with on Thursdays on Adult Swim, uh, he said we we were sitting talking one day and thought, hey, I bet we could, you know, raise some money, 
do some good with this uh, silly following. And I can't tell you, I've just been overwhelmed. Uh, people have given in excess of $180,000 in just a couple of weeks. We're helping people in Kentucky and New York and New Jersey, PPE, food banks, uh, you name it. We're trying trying to make a little bit of a difference. That's awesome. It's far from silly then, it seems, at this point. I know, and we mentioned you faced hardship yourself. How does that help you help others? Yeah, you know, I honestly, I, I was a lottery pick in the NBA. I played 12 years. I played in the NBA. I played for Team USA, University of Kentucky. And when I was done, I fell prey to, to uh, painkiller addiction for the better part of 15 mm -hmm. years. I slept in my car a little while. I slept on friends' couches. And it's been a steady progress of building back. So I definitely know what it feels like to be down on your luck. And sometimes all you need, you need a hot meal to get you through the night and have something to look forward to the next day. I've been there and and all we can do is try to take care of one another right now. It's a scary time. It's a scary time, but you're making it a little bit less scary because in addition to the relief fund, you're helping out simply by posting videos that are bringing a lot of us joy, some laughs, some happiness in a time when we need that more than ever. Tell us what the response has been like to what of your, some of your postings. Oh, it's it's hilarious. Um, I, I have fun with it. And, you know, if people people have started saying, well, you're Mr. Feelgood. If you say that around any of my friends, they start cracking up because I'm not Mr. Feelgood. I'm faking my way through this just like everybody else, <laughs> trying to find a little sunshine every day, something to make me laugh. And I'm I'm faking my way through it. So I know that if I'm if I'm helping a little bit, all these followers, they're helping me get through just as well. Yeah, do you, do you have anything you want to say to the people who are really enjoying what you're giving them, at least just, if anything, a distraction from what they're dealing with? Yeah, actually, I just want a, a big thank you, a thank you to everybody. This is all very unexpected. Um, again, I've, I've, I've been up, to the, up the mountaintop and down down again, and hopefully I'm, I'm ascending again this time. But it's life is weird and life is hard. And right now you have to lean on one another as much as we can't see each other in person, reach out, find that friend, text them, call them, Skype them, do whatever you can, tell them you love them. I love it. Your humility, your humor, your generosity, helping us each and every day. Rex Chapman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that is it for this week. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News, honored winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.